constant fear. He lived in this jungle cave. He spent his days in the cave. He only came out at night. He ate frogs, rats, snails, nuts, mangoes. You see, the war was over. The victory had been won. The world had changed. Yokoi could have enjoyed a new life if only he had believed and received the good news that he had earlier rejected. I bring this story up because it parallels the experience of so many Christians. Too many of us endure a self-imposed bondage. Rather than walk in the light of God's grace, we live in a cave called doubt. We spend our time fighting a battle that's already been won against an enemy that's already been defeated. This truth is taught in Romans 6 through 8. This is the good news. And if we believe it, it has the power to set us free. Understand these truths and they will change your life. Now, at the end of chapter 5, Paul made a statement. He said, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Or literally, grace superabounded. Paul was conveying a glorious truth. That grace has no limits. Sin can never dig a hole from which grace can't get us out. But Paul knows his comment could be misinterpreted. Someone might say, well... If the more we sin, the more God supplies grace, then it's our duty to sin. Therefore, God can show off his grace. In fact, there was a Russian heretic, a man by the name of Rasputin, who adopted this philosophy. He once wrote, if you are simply an ordinary sinner, you are not giving God an opportunity to show his glory. So you need to be an extraordinary sinner. Sounds like a lot of people I know. For Rasputin and for others, God's grace became an excuse to sin. And therefore, they brought disgrace on God's grace. Paul addresses this heresy in Romans chapter 8. He anticipates this line of thinking, this misinterpretation. And in verse 1, he asks, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? What about this line of thought? And his answer is in verse 2. Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Paul's words, certainly not, are emphatic. In fact, his answer is the strongest negative the Greek language offers. The New American Standard Bible translated, may it never be. The Revised Standard Version, by no means. The Living Bible, of course not. The King James, God forbid. The New English Bible, no, no. The Phillips translation, what a ghastly thought. The Jewish New Testament, heaven forbid. And the Sandy paraphrase, no way, Jose. (laughs) If you're thinking, well, if God is going to treat me as if I'd never sin regardless, then why not just sin to the hilt? If that's your thinking, you don't understand the grace of God. Write it down. God's grace is never an excuse for us to sin. And Paul explains why. Up until now, Paul has been describing Jesus' work for us. But you see, he has also done a work in us. Faith in Christ cleanses our sin, but it also changes our nature. And this is the liberating truth taught in Romans chapter 6. 
It delivers us from both the penalty of sin and the power of sin. This is what that line in that old famous hymn, Rock of Ages. You sang it a million times, but you probably never realized what you were singing. But this is what, what it meant when he said, Be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. It's the double cure. Yes, we've been saved from the wrath of God. But God has also worked in our lives effectually to make us pure and holy and righteous. In other words, Jesus has done more than just apply a new paint job. He's overhauled the engine in your life. And here in Romans chapter 6, Paul pops the hood on the Christian life to reveal the transformation that occurs in the life and heart of the believer. Call Romans 6 the spiritual schematic of our new life in Christ. And three words serve as our outline. You'll notice in verse 6 the word know. There are things you need to know. You'll notice in verse 11 the word reckon. I told you Paul was a southerner. And then in verse 13 is the word present. The chapter in a nutshell, know, reckon, present. Verse 6 tells us, knowing this, I hope you know this, that our old man was crucified with Christ, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. This is why we know that one of the thieves on the cross was actually Paul's father. Because he says here, my old man was crucified with Christ. Just a joke. And and that's not what you need to know from this passage. Here's what you need to know. If you've read the first five verses of the chapter, you'll see that Paul is explaining our union with Christ. We've been baptized or initiated into Christ Jesus In a spiritual sense, we now share in all that He has done and accomplished. Verse 3 states, As many of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. According to verse 2, When Jesus died for sin, we died to sin. A change occurred in us. Of course, the question is, Sandy, how can this be? What do you mean? Our old man was crucified with Christ. It is strange to think that we can share in an event that occurred 2,000 years before we were born and in a place we've never been. And yet that is exactly what Paul tells us. The Christian philosopher Pascal once wrote, One of the greatest principles of Christianity is that which happened in Jesus Christ may happen in the soul of the Christian. Think of it this way. In the making of a movie, the scenes are shot first with the actors only. Later, the technicians will go back and they'll dub in the special effects, the soundtrack. They'll put it all on top of the original footage. In God's mind, when you came to Jesus, you were dubbed in over the crucifixion. God transposed my old man over his only son. And now when God rewinds the footage of the crucifixion, there I am, crucified with Jesus Christ. Theologian Frank Gabian puts it this way. Our spiritual history began at the cross. On the cross, Jesus died to put away our sin. And that's what has happened in us when we come to him. Our old man, that sin nature that was inherited from Adam, is crucified. 
When you come to Christ, it's dead, it's buried, it's gone. And by His Spirit, God births in you a brand new nature. Yes, as long as I live in a fallen world and, and, and as long as I inhabit fallen flesh, I will still sin. But understand this. It is no longer I who sin, Paul says. I don't sin because my nature demands it. I now have a new nature. One whose impulse is to love God and to love others. The real me, the inner me, the eternal me is indeed a new creation in Christ and no longer stained with sin. In the 10th grade, I dated a girl who had a German shepherd named Butch. One bad, mean dog. In fact, on our first date, Butch attacked me and pinned me against the front door. And I was rescued by her mother right before he mauled me to pieces. On our next date, I insisted that she chain this dog up. And that's why I got out of the car. Because I could see the dog. Yes, it was growling and licking its chops, but it had a chain around its neck. And the chain kind of snaked back into the garage. I went up to the door. I picked the girl up. And as we were walking back to the car, I looked over at the dog, sort of kicked a little dirt in his face. And I looked at the chain. And suddenly it dawned on me that the chain wasn't tied to anything. It was laying there loose in the middle of the garage. You've never seen a man run to the car any faster than I did at that moment. As the story goes, when this dog was younger, it would run out to the end of the chain and it would get jerked backwards. And so it learned that it could go only so far. And then then it stopped and it became such a habit that the other end of the chain no longer had to be tied. Guys, there are a lot of Christians who are just like Butch. They're on a chain called sin. But guess what? That chain is now powerless. Jesus has cut off the power lines. He's given us a new nature. That old man is now dead. We can walk away if we just believe. The problem, though, is that this is the truth that Christians just don't know. They're Christians who don't know that they're dead to sin. They see themselves as a sinner. They see themselves as someone continually trying to overcome their sin rather than seeing themselves as a saint who's been forgiven of sin and has been set free from sin. You know, how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself as a saint, a child of God, righteous in Christ Jesus? From there, you can live in victory. Or do you see yourself as a sinner, hoping that one day, maybe, somehow, I can... Become right with God. It's all in how we see ourselves. It reminds me of the two old country boys who were playing with a turtle that they'd found in the street. One of the guys pulled out his knife and chopped off the turtle's head. Yet the turtle's body just kind of kept walking across the blacktop. And this caused an argument between the old boys. The first guy said, that turtle's dead. It doesn't have a head. But the other old country boy, he said, no, it can't. Be dead because it's still walking. Finally, up comes Bubba. And they say, Bubba, tell us, is this turtle dead or is it alive? And old Bubba thought for a minute and he replied, well, boys, it seems to me the turtle's dead. He just don't know it yet. That's the problem with many believers. We are dead to sin. We've been made brand new in Christ. We're alive to God now through Jesus Christ. 
The work has been finished. Nothing else needs to be done for you to enter into the presence of God. One day, this flesh will fall off. Your spirit will go into the the presence of God. And nothing else needs to be done to your spirit, to the real you, to make you fit for God's presence. That's already been accomplished on the cross. The work has been finished. We just don't know it yet. We don't really believe it is true. Which brings us to the next word. It's the word reckon. Verse 11. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, when we Southerners say, I reckon, it doesn't really mean much. There's not a lot of authority in the assertion. Well, I reckon I'll just mosey on home. What does that mean? Not not much. But this Greek word that's translated reckon is stronger. It means to consider something as true. To consider it so or to treat it as true. God wants us to see ourselves as new creations in Christ. Dead to sin. Alive in God. We need to adopt a new identity in Christ. We are no longer sinners trying to be saints. We are now saints who are learning how not to sin. We've become first and foremost children of God. It's not just wishful thinking. It's not just positive confession. Hey, reckoning it it so doesn't make it so. We reckon it so because it is so. God has done it. To reckon ourselves dead to sin, alive to Christ, is to learn to see ourselves and really treat ourselves as children of God. My favorite actor was John Wayne. And I love the statement he once made. He said, when I take a role, I play John Wayne, regardless of the character I happen to be portraying. Hey, you dress up John Wayne in Civil War attire or put cowboy chaps on him or put him in a Marine Corps uniform, it doesn't matter. John Wayne always projected the very same persona. And this is how we need to live as believers. No matter where we're at, no matter who we're with, no matter what we're doing, we need to learn to see ourselves dead to sin, alive to God, a new creation in Christ. And if we see ourselves as Christians, guys, we'll be more inclined to act like it. But if we see ourselves as Miserable sinners who've got no hope. We're not reckoning on the work of Christ. And chances are we'll live that way. Identity determines behavior. Outlook determines outcome. That's why you and I, we need to believe. We need to trust. We need to learn to adopt a new identity in Christ Jesus and see ourselves as the new creations he's made us. There is a third word in this chapter. It's the word present. Verse 13. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Now, in Romans chapter 6, Paul is talking about man as a dichotomy, as two parts. He's, He's talking about us as the inner man and the outer man. The inner man is what lives forever, whereas the outer man or what we might call the flesh, 
the mind and the body. This is the part of us that returns to dust. When you come to Christ, spiritually, in the inner man, you become new. You receive a new nature. That old nature is eradicated. You are brand new in Christ Jesus. But outwardly, in the outer man, we remain the same. Our members retain the sin that we learned before we became Christians. Our members are prone to be influenced by the sin around us. Our members are accustomed and have that tendency to continue to sin. This is a Christian. He's been transformed at the core. But it's his members that need to be rehabilitated. In my spirit, I now want to love God. I want to love others. But in my hands, in my feet, in my eyes, in my thoughts, I have been conditioned by selfish desires. And yet understand, your members are your servant. Your hands and your feet and your eyes and your thoughts, they take orders. And it's up to you to determine where those orders will originate. Will you allow the habits of the past? Will you allow the influence of the, of the world to govern your life? Or will you take charge? Reckon your old man dead. Reckon yourself alive to God. And then cause your members to submit and become instruments of righteousness. Everybody serves somebody. And it's up to us to choose. Will we align our members around the disobedience of our former life? Or will we realign them around obedience to Christ? Paul says in verse 19, For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. In other words, why don't you be as aggressive seeking God as you once were raising hell? Why don't you take all that energy and emphasis and turn it around? Whereas you once presented your members unto unrighteousness, now turn around and present your members with that same aggressiveness unto righteousness. People think that being a Christian means settling down. Who says? The Christian is still grabbing for all the gusto. He's just realized that the real gusto is found in God. Paul closes the chapter in verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why should you or I be a slave to sin? Sin leads to death. Let's be a slave to God. Let's present our members as instruments of God. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Romans 6 explains how a believer in Jesus is dead to sin. Whereas Romans 7 explains how we are also dead to the law. And both realizations are vital for our victory. You see, for 1,500 years, the Jews tried to live under the law's righteous requirements, but with very little success. The law only condemned them. It was powerless to change them. And the Jews' obligation to the law was like a marriage. It was until death do us part. And this is why Paul says in verse 1, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long 
as he lives. Now, living under the law was like being married to Mr. Perfect. Ladies, imagine being married to Mr. Perfect. Waking up in the morning, rolling over to kiss your husband, and there he lies, Mr. Perfect. Not a single hair out of place. A smile on his face. He didn't even grow stubble overnight. You give him a little peck on the cheek. He jumps out of bed. He does his 100 push-ups, his 100 set-ups. Keeps himself in tip-top shape. He races downstairs to prepare you breakfast. And we're not talking sweet rolls and coffee. No way. Mr. Perfect fixes the perfect breakfast. Skim milk. Tomato juice. Fresh fruit. A big bowl of granola. Oh, this sounds so good at first. But before long, Mr. Perfect begins to expect a little perfection out of you. He points out how you could do a few set-ups and push-ups every now and then. You know, honey, you could lose a few pounds like me. He suggests you cut chocolate out of your diet. Why don't you eat more granola, honey? He's always running a white glove over the top of the fridge. He's checking behind the kid's ears for little specks of dirt. After a while, you get tired of Mr. Perfect. You're sick of Mr. Perfect. Mr. Perfect has become Mr. Pest. In fact, life with Mr. Perfect gets so frustrating that you want a divorce. But on what grounds? After all, he's perfect. And so in desperation, you try to kill him. You poison his tomato juice. But he's so healthy, it doesn't even phase him. He's perfect. Finally, you realize the only way out is to die yourself. And that's Paul's point in verse 4. He says, therefore, my brethren, you also have become dead to the law through the body of Christ, that you may be married to another To him who was raised from the dead, that we should bear fruit to God. We were bound to the law as long as we were alive. But as Christians, remember what's happened to us. We have died with Christ. Our old man was crucified with him. And our union with Christ ended our obligation to sin and to the law. We are now married, not to the law, but to the Lord. In verse 5, Paul notes notes his problem with the law. He says, it aroused his sinful passions. Now, wait a minute. The law is perfect. How can the law arouse our sinful passions? Well, let's try an experiment. Everybody close your eyes. Just for a few seconds, close your eyes. But whatever you do, don't imagine a pink elephant. Keep your eyes closed now. Think about whatever you want to think about, but don't you picture in your mind a pink elephant. No, don't do it. No pink elephants. Please, no pink elephants now. Whatever you do, don't think of a pink elephant. You can open your eyes. How many of you of you envisioned a pink elephant? Every one of you did. The mere suggestion of it 
cause that pink elephant to pop up in your mind. We have a problem in our church with people driving by. Hopefully it's not a problem in our church. It's a a problem with people outside of our church. But we have a problem with people driving by through the week and throwing beer cans out into the front lawn. I, I guess they're doing it just out of spite, out of their rebellion against God or whatever. But what if we were to put a big sign up in the front of our church that read, Don't throw beer cans on the church lawn. What do you think would happen? Well, I'll tell you what would happen. The next day, the front lawn of the church would look like a fraternity house after a bulldog game. There would be beer cans scattered everywhere. You see, all the rules really do is they provide the center a target. Hearts are changed by the Holy Spirit, not by the Holy Standard. Paul says the law served a purpose. Yes, it exposed his sin. Verse 7, he says, For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said you shall not covet. It showed his sin. It exposed his sin, defined his sin for him. But again, here's his problem, verse 8. But sin, taking opportunity by the commandment, produced in me all manner of evil desire. If you're a believer, your focus is on Jesus Christ. His love, His pardon, His power. That is until someone comes along and interjects law into your thinking. Again, somebody comes along and says, chocolate ice cream is evil. Chocolate ice cream should be prohibited. Chocolate ice cream is full of fat and calories. Stay away from thick, creamy, delicious chocolate ice cream. But the more I warn you against chocolate ice cream, the more you want it. And the harder you try to resist, the stronger the temptation becomes. Under the law, the issue is the sin in my life. But under grace, the issue is the sun in my life. You see, it is the joy we find in Jesus that lessens sin's appeal, that neutralizes sin's temptation. I progress in my Christian life by believing that my sin has been dealt with on the cross and preoccupying myself with following the Son, enjoying His goodness, relishing His love, learning to walk with Him, not fighting against the sin. When we walk in the Spirit, we won't fulfill The desires of the flesh, Paul tells us. Again, Paul is careful not to discredit the law. The problem is not the law. He says in verse 14, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. And he's he's being honest. The problem is me, not the law. Verse 15 describes the struggle that all Christians experience. He says, for what I am doing, I do not understand. For what I will to do, that I do not practice. But what I hate, that I do. He says, my actions are contrary to my desires. Have you you ever had this experience? I want to obey God, but oh, sometimes I don't. I don't want to sin, but oh, sometimes I do. My godly ambitions lack the power to be realized. Verses 17 through 19 highlight the frustration we often feel 
He says, it is no longer I who do it. The real Paul, he's sinless. He's perfect in Christ. He's a new creation. It is the sin that dwells in me. Where? In my members. That which has been programmed into my mind and into my thoughts and with my hands and my feet. That which has been habitualized by the life that I've lived. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, in my members, my outer man, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do I do not do. But the evil I will not to do that I practice. In essence, Paul is a redeemed spirit packaged still in a corrupt flesh. And you and I are in the same predicament. He says in verse 17, it is no longer I who do it at his spiritual core. The real Paul is pure and holy, but in his members, sin is still present. And Paul and you are responsible for your members. Paul confesses in verse 21. For I find then a law that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. You know, I will to do good. I will it. It's in my heart. But evil is still present with me in my members. I, I, I like how Peterson paraphrases verse 21. He says, I truly delight in God's commands, but it's pretty obvious that not all of me joins in that delight. <laughs> The real me loves God, but I'm lugging around members. I'm carrying baggage that just doesn't want to cooperate all the time. Verse 22 says, I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind. It's a constant struggle we're in. In my heart, I want to follow God, but my flesh sabotages my obedience. There is a poem that applies Within my earthly temple, there is a crowd. There's one of us that's humble, one that's proud. One that's brokenhearted for his sins. One that's unrepentant, sits and grins. One that loves his neighbor as himself. And one that cares for nothing but fame and pomp and self. From much care, I should be free if I could once determine which of these is me. And that is the bottom line. Knowing this, this is why Paul says, knowing this, know who you are in Christ, reckon it to be so because it is so, and then support that recognition by presenting your members as instruments unto righteousness. He says in verse 24, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Apart from Jesus, Paul is wretched. But in Jesus, there is victory. You see, the difference is not the law. The difference is the Lord. In short, chapter 7 tells me that by removing my obligation to the law, God gets my eyes off my failures and encourages me to live my life in the power of His Spirit. On my own, I'm doomed to struggle and frustration. But if I learn to lean on Jesus, if I orientate my life around my Lord, His Spirit will empower me to obey. And chapter 8 picks up where chapter 7 leaves off and tells us how to walk in the Spirit. Let me give you a little background, though. 
It is amazing to me how meanings of words change over time. Thirty years ago, hardware consisted of nuts and bolts. Hard drive involved maneuvering your car up a mountainside. Virus made you sick. Mouse carried the virus. Dump was where the mouse lived. Menu helped you order your food. Bite was what you did to your food. Spam was the type of meat you hoped was not on the menu. (laughs) Window was an opening in the wall of your house. Hacker was a bad golfer. Voice recognition was whether you wanted to come home for dinner when your mother called or you wanted to keep playing with your friends and pretend that you didn't hear. (laughs) Boot was what you wore on your foot. Desktop was the top of a desk. Laptop was the top of your lap. Load was when a heavy person sat on your laptop. (laughs) But we all know that today... Laptops and desktops and bytes and bits and menus and mouses are all computer jargon, new meanings created by the information age. Well, let me set up chapter 8 in computing terms. Like a computer, we consist of both hardware and software. Your physical body is the hardware. But hardware, you see, is controlled by software, by mindsets, by beliefs and assumptions and perspectives. Now imagine two types of software, two operating systems, both loaded onto your hard drive. One is the law of the spirit of life. The other is the law of sin and death, which, by the way, was an Apple product. Started all the way back in the Garden of Eden. Each morning when you wake up, You have a choice to make. Which operating system will I boot up today? Which approach to life will I take? Will I orientate my life around the Spirit of God? Or will I gravitate my thoughts in life around the things of the flesh? Think about that as we go through Romans chapter 8. Verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If I live in the Spirit, not under the law, if I'm set free from the law, if I'm trusting in the Spirit, I am no longer condemned. He says, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Now, when an airplane takes off, two laws are at work. The law of gravity is trying to hold it down. But the laws of thrust and lift supersede gravity and force it airborne. Likewise, Paul is saying that the law of the spirit of life supersedes the law of sin and death. So that when I get out from under the law, when I trust in God's grace, the law of God's spirit will take over in my life and it will cause me to soar above the deeds and sins of the flesh. When Paul came to Jesus, you might say God reconfigured his hard drive. He erased that sinful nature. He loaded a new nature, one that loves God and loves others. New software was installed. But for that software to run, what has to happen? 
When you load new software on your computer, what do you have to do before it kicks in? You've got to reboot. In other words, you've got to change your mentality from work to rest, from flesh to faith, from pride to trust, from grit to grace. You've got to change your mentality. You've got to reboot and begin to live your life by the law of the Spirit rather than by the law of sin and death. Paul says in chapter 8, verse 5 and 6, For those who live according to the flesh, what? They set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. What software is running on your hardware? He says, outlook determines outcome. Mindset is important. Are you spiritually minded? Or are you carnally or fleshly minded? In other words, do you see yourself in Christ? Or do you see yourself apart from Christ, struggling on your own? I don't know much about computers. But I have learned one truth over the years. In trying to repair my computer. When all else fails, reboot. Just reboot. And this applies to my spiritual life. When I begin to struggle, when I find myself doing what I hate and not doing what I desire to do, what do I do? I reboot. I check my mindset. Am I laboring under the law or am I trusting in God's grace? Am I looking at myself apart from Christ or am I leaning and looking to the Holy Spirit, realizing that I'm a child of God, a new creation in Christ Jesus? Verse 9 is vital. We're told that the Holy Spirit dwells inside every true believer. You see, that means that the Spirit lives in us. And in verse 10, we're told that the Spirit is alive to God, whereas the flesh is dead to the things of God. This is why we need to trust in the Spirit and we'll walk in victory. But if we rely on our own energies, it's going to get us nowhere. Here's a short outline for verses 11 through 17. Verses 11 through 13 tell us to live by the Spirit. Hey, we owe nothing to the flesh. Oftentimes our pride causes us to want to prove our worth. Somehow show that we are righteous. We forget that we can do nothing on our own. It is the Spirit who gives life. Verse 14 tells us that we're to be led by the Spirit. The word led means to be carried or driven. You know, I love to go to the beach. And whenever I go to the beach, I love to body surf. I love to get out there and just sort of stretch out on a wave and let it pick me up and just sort of propel me toward the shore. And the same is true with the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to be led by the Spirit. It's to stretch out in faith and let the power and energy of the Holy Spirit just pick you up and carry you in His momentum. Verses 15 through 17 tell us that we are loved by the Spirit. Catch this. We live by the Spirit. We're led by the Spirit. And we are loved by the Spirit. In fact, verse 15 calls the Holy Spirit the Spirit of adoption. It's He that makes us God's kids. It says He even cries out from our heart, Abba, which was an Aramaic word which meant Daddy or Papa. It was a term of closeness or endearment. 
The Spirit is who provides us intimacy with God. He says the Spirit also bears witness with our spirit that we are sons of God. The Spirit is confirmation. He's the one that confirms our connection with God. You might say that the Spirit is the dial tone that lets us know, yes, I'm connected. I've got an open line to the Father. I'm God's child. I'm an heir of all His riches. The Spirit conveys to us God's love. You know, I could tell my kids over and over that I love them. But if I never hugged my daughter, or if I never gave my boys a high five, it would be sort of a hollow love, wouldn't it? Think of the Holy Spirit as the hug of the Godhead. We feel God's love through the Spirit's presence in our lives. But that's not all the Holy Spirit does. Verse 23 describes the work of the Spirit in our lives today as the first fruits. In other words, there's much more to come. In verse 18, Paul tells us, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Think of a marathon. A 26 plus mile race. The contestants tow the starting line when one of the runners jumps the gun. It's a false start. But in light of the 26 miles, it's really no big deal, is it? As a matter of fact, at the finish line, that false start will barely be remembered. It will probably not even be recalled. And that's what the sufferings of this life are like compared to the glories of heaven and all that God is going to do for us in the ages to come. Heaven will be so heavy, Paul says, that it will make the sufferings of this world seem so light in comparison. In fact, when we get to heaven, did you know that the Christian will be something to behold? We will be something special in heaven. We will share in the glory of Christ Next to the Savior Himself, you and me will be the very highlight of heaven. Verse 19 says that all creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. What's all creation waiting for? The revealing of who you truly are in Christ and who I truly am in Christ. When we shed this flesh, we're clothed in glorified bodies. And the world sees us for who we have been made in Christ Jesus. Philip's translation puts it, The whole creation is on tiptoe to see the wonderful sight of the sons of God coming into their own. What a day that's going to be. Verse 20 is an important verse. He says, For the creation was subjected to futility. You see, in the beginning, the creation was in harmony with its creator. But sin has interjected a randomness into creation. Now nature is prone to go berserk. Old Mother Nature will get a case of PMS every now and then. The gentle rains that water your front lawn can also cause a flood. The wind that lifts your kid's kite can also blow down your house. Julie Andrews sings, The hills are alive with the sound of music. But today they're singing in a minor key. They're groaning, longing to be free. They're singing as a dirge. Creation groans, waiting for the redemption that God has promised to restore it to its original state. 
We're told in verse 23 that we too join in this groaning, longing for the redemption of our bodies. And as I get older, I do more and more of this kind of groaning. My inner man is like a hot air balloon. I am ready for heaven. I could take off at any time. But this outer man is like a sandbag that keeps holding me down. And we groan to be free. Not to just be spirits fluttering around, but we groan to be transformed into new creations. We, we, we groan for the spirit to be set free, but for us too to receive a new body, for these bodies themselves to also be redeemed. As Paul puts it, the redemption of our bodies. And what are we doing now? In this in-between time. And that's what we're living in. We're living in the in-between time. We're living in the meantime. We're living in the time between when the promise has been given and when the promise has been fulfilled. We have been promised a home in heaven. We're not there yet, though. So what are we doing in this in-between time? Verse 25. We wait for it with perseverance. Jesus will one day rapture us home. That's our hope. But between now and then, we have an opportunity to learn perseverance and endurance and stick to itness. There are actually three groanings mentioned in Romans chapter 8. There is the groaning around us. All creation is groaning for the redemption. There is the groaning within us. We too are groaning for the redemption of our bodies. And then there is the Spirit's groaning on behalf of us. That's what Paul mentions in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. When our minds are so befuddled that we don't know how to pray, we don't know what to pray for. When our hearts are so heavy, we're overwhelmed, the Holy Spirit will groan for us. And this is just how it works in my life. In moments of desperation, I'll just start groaning. I'll just sort of release my sighs and, and just sort of audibleize raw emotion. I don't really know what God's will is. I don't know how to pray. But I'll just start to groan. And as I do, I trust the Holy Spirit to translate my feelings into the Father's will and pray perfect prayers on my behalf. And in those moments, the Spirit ends up being the perfect prayer partner. Understand, God has a purpose for our groanings. Groaning causes growing. Never forget that. We are adopted into God's family. And that causes us to rejoice. But in addition, we are also being adapted into God's family. And that causes us to groan. It's called growing pains. It's not always easy to be adapted. In the lives of His children, God uses circumstances... Pleasant and painful. And he works them together for good. Notice Paul says in verse 28, God works not a few things, not some things, not even most things, but all things together for good. God never loses sight of his purpose either. We were chosen and predestined to be conformed into the image of Jesus, he says in verse 29. And God is not afraid to use a little suffering in our lives to accomplish that goal. 
The chapter closes with a flurry of questions. Designed not necessarily to be answered, but to simply stir up our amazement of God's mercy and love for us. Verse 31 asks, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Nobody. Verse 32 tells us, If God spared not His only Son, Jesus... Don't you think he'll give you everything else you might need as you walk with him? In verse 33, Paul assures us that God is not condemning us or judging us. Jesus died to save us. Why then would he turn around and condemn us? In fact, he is stationed right now at the right hand of God, at the throne in heaven. And what is he doing? He is making intercession for you and me, ensuring our eternal salvation. Paul himself is evidence of Christ's faithfulness. He's experienced tribulation and peril and distress and persecution and famine and exposure and the sword. And yet he says in verse 37, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Guys, live for Jesus and you'll discover two truths to be true. The world will put you down, but God will never let you down. God's love is a conquering and overcoming love. Let me close tonight's study by reading the last two verses of this incredible chapter. Absorb these two verses and you'll never again doubt God's love for you. Paul says, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Father, we thank you tonight for your word and for these wonderful chapters. Help us to hide them in our hearts that we might walk pleasing to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, You're dismissed.